And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, July 28th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, our budget cuts the best way to fix troubled agencies. Plus, U.S. Space Force tests out wearable devices to track Guardian's fitness. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Office of Personnel Management has taken a small step in fixing some problems in its Retirement Services Division. A new series of tutorial videos should help reduce errors and lessen calls to customer service. That's according to OPM. But bigger plans for modernizing federal retirement still lie ahead. Here with the latest details, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And Drew, let's start with these videos. What do they cover and what is OPM trying to do with videos? So these videos are looking at a couple of key items on the federal to-do list and laying them out step-by-step for federal retirees or those who are looking to retire from the federal government. And they address a couple of areas where feds often can get stuck or make errors in the federal retirement process. So one of the videos is shows you how to set up an account with login.gov. Another one shows you how to link an existing login.gov account to OPM Services Online, which is their Retirement Services Online Center. And then a third that helps you reset your account in the case of a missing code. And so these are a couple of different, you know, just few minute long videos. And it's a small step, but OPM is hoping that it's going to reduce errors overall and then ultimately reduce maybe some calls to the Retirement Services Call Center. And just, you know, creating more of a focus on self-service options for federal retirees to make things a little bit easier along the way. And OPM Director Karen Ahuja has said that, you know, she just wants the transition to retirement to be as easy as possible for federal employees. So it's basically a video how-to of the same old process. Exactly. So it doesn't actually change the process itself, but it's just a little bit more in the direction of trying to help employees navigate Uh, the system as it currently exists. Okay. And so then there's also a quick guide that they made. And what is that form? Is that something online also? So similarly, this is something that the goal is to address the immediate problems in the retirement process for federal employees. And this came out in May. So these there's OPM has had a couple of things over the past few months to, you know, make things a little bit easier with the way the process is set up now. They have bigger goals on the horizon, but they've said, you know, still people who are retiring right now need more help, need more resources. So that retirement quick guide was essentially a three-page guide that detailed, you know, what federal employees can expect from the process to retire, estimate, you know, when are they going to get their first annuity payments. And the goal is at the end of the day and just improving the retirement experience overall for federal employees. That's something that is definitely a big pain point for a lot of people. And through all of this, the backlogs go up and down and up and down. Any trends in the backlogs? Are they getting longer? Are they getting more numerous? We're actually seeing the backlog decline very significantly, Tom. The retirement claims backlog just in June is was actually the lowest level that it's been since 2017. So in six years, we're, we're at the lowest level of pending claims at OPM. There's 16,370 pending claims right now. And just for some comparison, uh, about March last year, OPM was at its most recent peak in the backlog of over 36,000 cases impending. So it's a huge, huge decline here. 
It's still above OPM's steady state goal of having 13,000 pending retirement claims at any given time, but it seems like it's a big step in the right direction. Because when they're processing the claims themselves, that's still done by hand by people examining basically paperwork. Exactly. The retirement system at OPM is almost entirely or very largely paper-based, and it's actually the area of OPM that has the most legacy technology. So it's been a a major uh, goal of OPM for at least you know, years, if not decades, to improve or modernize retirement, the Retirement Services Center. But uh, that's something that they've run into a lot of problems with over the years. And this is something Congress is also interested in your reporting. Right. So Congress is, you know, they're pressuring OPM a bit about trying to modernize the retirement services system. So even though there has been a drop in the number of pending claims and the OPM has made kind of these small steps forward in uh, how to address the system as it is now, they want full IT modernization of the system. So most recently, we saw actually a letter from Senator James Lankford going to OPM, and he called the current backlog of retirement claims unacceptable. So he's really pressuring a OPM to what is their modernization plan, what is the cost of it going to be, and what's the timeline going to be to to get that up and running? Because that's something they've been hammering at for so many years. What is their plan? Do they have a plan to modernize it? They do have a plan. And, you know, as I mentioned, this is something that OPM has been saying that it's going to modernize or improve for a very long time. Those efforts to update retirement services, they generally are falling short of expectations or have for a long time. But you know, they're hoping this time will be different because they're trying to take these smaller steps towards improvements. So, for example, we saw the introduction of a chat bot, which helps federal retirees or those looking to retire get some of their most common questions answered. Um, so, you know, they have some initial strategies underway, but this I- larger IT modernization plan is still at least likely years away uh, from now. Sounds like they need a way to digitize all of that paper to get that information from paper and into a machine-readable format, and then you voila, a little AI fairy dust, and next thing you know, it takes three days to get your annuity figured out. Yeah, Tom, it sounds easy when you say it that way, but it's still going to be a long time from now, I think. Um do they have technology modernization fund money, or do they have appropriations for modernization? I mean, this is something they are actively pursuing. These are just stopgaps, these new videos and, and, and guides. Right. The the videos and the guide are, are just these smaller efforts to address the system as it is now, but they have requested uh, money set aside in their budget request to address the system more largely and, and more long-term as well. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, U.S. Space Force tests out wearable devices to track Guardian's fitness. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. How fit are Guardians, service members in the U.S. Space Force? The Air Force would like to know, so the Air Force Research Lab is running an experiment to find out what information wearable fitness devices might yield and whether they'll help increase the fitness of Guardians. We get more now from the Deputy Chief of Space Operations for Human Capital at the Space Force, Catherine Kelly. Ms. Kelly, good to have you with us. Thank you, Tom. Great to be here with you. And from the product line lead at the Air Force Research Lab, Dr. James Christensen. Dr. Christensen, good to have you with us. 
Good morning, Tom. I'm excited to be with you today. All right. So you're doing a study. What are you trying to find out precisely here with wearable devices? And then we'll get into like what the devices are. Thanks, Tom. Let me jump in if you don't mind. We're really excited about this. And AFRL, Air Force Research Lab, is doing the study on behalf of the Space Force. What I think is really, really interesting is what our conclusions will be and how people wear these devices and what they tell us about the health and wellness of our guardians. We're really after getting away from this once a year episodic testing that has been traditional in the DOD and trying to get to more purposeful physical activity for our guardians. Because I think maybe the reputation or the assumption about guardians is simply that, well, because assets are out in space, they're not in tanks, they're not running exercises, it's kind of a bunch of nerds operating joysticks. That's probably not accurate. But is there much physical activity relative to, say, other service members for Space Force? And is that the reason you want to check this out? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons, Tom. First of all, I would say the most compelling for us is the fact that the cognition required to be an effective guardian to control and manage these assets that you just referenced is so significant that the overall health and wellness of this force is arguably just as critical, if not more so. Meaning you have got to be on your game if you are going to be controlling the types and levels of equipment and complexity in the space domain that we're talking about. So the expectations for guardians are real, they're high, and they need to be fit, they need to be ready, and they need to be at peak performance, quite frankly. Not just physical, but mental as well. Yeah, so this is not flying a drone at the local football field. And Dr. Christensen, give us a sense of the types of wearables, the types of data that you are hoping to gather here just as raw material. Absolutely. We're using fitness watches that collect how much, how hard do you work out from an aerobic fitness perspective, and also give us an estimate of your overall level of cardiorespiratory fitness. So the watch itself gets at regular purposeful physical fitness activity, as well as your overall level of fitness. And then as part of the study, we're collecting quite a bit of additional information from the guardians that speaks to their exercise motivations, their perceptions and concerns about using the fitness device rather than the annual test, and then also their utilization of medical services, any injuries that they may have experienced, you know, whether they sought medical attention or not, so that when we get towards the end of the study, we'll be able to inform Space Force about how effective is this at maintaining the fitness of the members and do we see changes in injuries, changes in some of the longer-term health outcomes that would provide benefits to both the individual member as well as the overall force? And Ms. Kelly indicated that there's a connection between the mental capability of doing very painstaking work with expensive, precise gear that's very far away and the physical condition of the body that's housing that brain. And so how do you make that connection specifically? Because someone could, I don't know, have great statistics, but they're not mentally sharp and possibly vice versa. So can you maybe clarify that connection a little bit? Absolutely. So I think, you know, our guardians 
you know, have the basic skills that they need to do their job well, but where the physical performance comes in is years of research that have shown that cardiorespiratory fitness supports a member's resilience, their ability to deal with fatigue, with long-term stress that, you know, comes with, you know, performing the kind of complex technical tasks that we're asking them to do. So in that sense, their cardiorespiratory fitness is part of their overall health that supports their ability to do their mission. We're speaking with Dr. James Christensen. He's product line lead for the 711th Human Performance Wing at the Air Force Research Laboratory, and with Catherine Kelly. She's Deputy Chief of Space Operations for Human Capital at U.S. Space Force. Now, is this a voluntary thing by the Guardians? How many people do you need to have attached so to speak, in order to get the proper base of data that you need to evaluate all of this? Tom, it is Guardian-driven in the sense that it is voluntary. I'm very excited, though. Dr. Christensen will will share a little bit more about the volume of interest, but we've got over 6,000 Guardians that have volunteered already, which is the preponderance of our current Guardians. So it's really exciting for us to see the level of interest And I think that speaks to another aspect that I wanted to just share with your listeners. There's a real propensity to use technology, especially for the younger generations and those that we're trying to attract to the Space Force. And so this is part of an overall program for us to make sure that we are leveraging the best of breed and ways to think differently about achieving similar ends. I think this technology adoption, if it proves to be successful through the study, is going to really enable um, both interest in the Space Force and connect with our propensed to serve populations. And what are some of the technical challenges here? I mean, I've got a Garmin watch on and there's a Fitbit and there's this one and that one. They all have different probably data formats, different mechanisms by which they measure what's going on under the skin, this kind of thing. Tell us how you normalize all that for purposes of data analysis. The Air Force Research Lab routinely tests different off-the-shelf wearable fitness devices to evaluate not only the accuracy of the data that they provide and then the manner, the formats in which they provide it, but also looking at a broader perspective of the ease of integration with other systems, the privacy and security provisions that the manufacturer provides. So one thing that's been exceptionally important to us throughout this process is ensuring that we're protecting the privacy and the security of the individual member and the voluntary nature of the study. You know, this is this is a no way mandatory. It's a it's a free and open choice on the part of the member to participate and to provide their data. But you know, we then accept the responsibility of ensuring that we're protecting that and it's really only being used for the stated purpose of evaluating this approach and informing future Space Force policy. So in that sense, we're giving members a direct voice into what the follow-on program looks like by choosing to participate in the study. Because there's a couple of possible sticky wickets here. One is that all of these devices put data in the cloud. I mean, you know, every time I go out running, it's in the cloud somewhere. I don't care if anyone takes it in China. But, you know, if someone could aggregate data, ooh, we know all about the U.S. Space Force here and their physical attributes, this kind of thing. One issue. The other issue is what if the data on an individual turns up, say, evidence of substance abuse or some other kind of behavior that you don't want? You know, can you legitimately, in an experiment study about the fitness of the population, 
you act on that particular piece of data? Yes. So in evaluating possible solutions for wearable fitness devices, um, we've extensively analyzed on the security of both the watch itself, the app that goes with it, and the cloud infrastructure that supports it. So we benefit from the availability of military cloud solutions, uh, such as Air Force Cloud One, that we can utilize that, that come with a lot of the security provisions that, that we need in order to execute the study. Nevertheless, you know, that has been a huge concern and we put substantial effort both on the part of Space Force and the Air Force Research Lab into analyzing and ensuring that we've got the right protections in place for our members' data. Another aspect of that that you touched on is allowable uses of the data from the study. We very carefully restricted who has access to study data and what it may be used for, even going so far as to obtain what's called a certificate of confidentiality that essentially protects us from being subpoenaed to turn over study data. So a member's data cannot be used as any part of a criminal proceeding. That's one of the things that's important to us about ensuring that study data is really only used for the stated purpose of assessing their fitness and informing future policy. And so, yeah, I was going to ask Ms. Kelly then, the purpose of this is not to find out about individuals, but to find out about an aggregated force that you want to keep in top shape. You're exactly right, Tom. I think that's what's really, really potentially inspiring about this, because this is really a pathfinder for the DOD. This is really about how can you better assess continuously the true health and wellness of your force and not just know that one day a year they were able to run and do push-ups and sit-ups. And so being able to do that in a way that does protect guardian data and does protect the privacy of the individuals and then aggregate it such that policy is derived from a more informed position, I think that is what is so exciting about this to see what we can learn from it and then develop that may also be an adoption across the department. And by the same token, you could also get a dashboard that says to the commanders, you know, maybe, hey, folks, let's all go out and run an extra half hour for the next month and see what happens. What's really, really interesting about this is when we embarked on the discussion, Tom, everybody was concerned that, you know, we were going to just be wearing a fitness watch and then there's no such thing as physical training in the Space Force. And that is absolutely not the case. In fact, what we've seen is these devices inspire people in healthy competition. And so unit PT is just like you would expect it to be. And commanders are out there running with their units and people are building their own little teams to compete against each other. And so there's a real benefit here that is above and beyond to include esprit de corps. Catherine Kelly is Deputy Chief of Space Operations for Human Capital at U.S. Space Force. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for your interest and excited to see where this takes us. And Dr. James Christensen is product line lead for the 711th Human Performance Wing at the Air Force Research Laboratory. Thanks so much. Great speaking with you today, Tom. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the Agriculture Department puts together a new model to manage its cloud services. But first... Our budget cuts really the best way to fix troubled agencies. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. 
Washington's ticker tape of controversy has wrapped around several agencies and departments. Republicans in Congress would fix things by cutting their budgets. But is that the best way to cause reform, even the reform you want? Not according to former American University Professor Bob Tobias, who joins me now. And Bob, you're concerned about what seems to be happening around two agencies in particular, the IRS and the Office of Personnel Management. The IRS is, you know, having its tintinabulations on Capitol Hill these days. But let's talk about the idea of separating what you want for policy with budgeting just to make sure things operate properly. Yeah, Tom, you know, we're once again in the midst of federal employee anxiety over whether federal agencies in general, but particularly the IRS and OPM, will have their budget slashed for 2024. And in the case of the IRS... The House seeks to rescind $67 billion of the $80 billion it allocated just last year. And it allocated this money to increase taxpayer assistance so when taxpayers call, they can get accurate information and file properly, and to increase audits of corporations and individuals making more than $400,000 a year. So a recent study found the IRS is doing just great and getting $12 return for every dollar the taxpayer spends. And in the case of OPM, its budget is going to be slashed, notwithstanding its effort to reduce retirement application backlogs and to make it easier to apply for jobs in the federal government. And in the case of OPM, its backlogs are at the lowest level it's been in many, many years. So it's doing well also. But once again, Agency employees who've been doing great work based on any objective measure and should be celebrating their success fear job loss and shutdowns. Now, if they were in the private sector, they'd be thinking about bonuses, not shutdowns. So it's just standing performance on its head, punishing good performance. You know, it's easy to think the effort will fail in the Senate and federal employees should just ignore the House. And while it's true, I think that most of the extreme cuts may fail in the Senate when the House and Senate meet to reconcile their differences, because ultimately they'll have to negotiate a settlement. But it's also true the Senate will have to give up something to reach agreement. So that something, once again, if given up, will have nothing to do with agency efficiency, effectiveness, or mission accomplishments. In the budget process, agencies and federal employees should be evaluated on how well they perform their task and funded based on their performance, not punished. Not punished with fewer funds for good performance. They should not have to worry when they do well. Well, you could, just to play devil's advocate, the IRS actually hadn't had that $80 billion yet. That was $80 billion over 10 years, starting Correct. in 2024. And so with the funding they've had so far, they've done pretty well. So you could argue, well, why do they need more? Well, they've hired 5,000 taxpayer assistants. And this year, the amount of wait time decreased to about 10 minutes as opposed to hours in prior years. So the money that was allocated has led to better service to the public. And they've hired revenue agents and are in the process of training them. So the idea that the IRS hasn't spent the money well, I think is wrong. And to cut it would 
decrease service to the public and would not maximize revenue for the taxpayer. We are speaking with Bob Tobias. He's a former federal union president, a retired professor in the key executive leadership program at American University, but obviously still watching things very closely these days. And what is it about OPM, do you think, that makes it become a political football? I know the Trump administration wanted to kind of divide and scatter its functions around the government, keeping it a policy shop in the White House and giving its operation to GSA. And now, you know, Republicans, I guess, in the House, as you say, are trying to get out the budget there, too. What is it about OPM, do you think? You know, I'm not sure the Republicans in the House are just slashing OPM and the detriment will be to people who want to retire and get their applications processed. So it's a mystery to me. I mean, if if Trump were president, it's clear what the goal for OPM was, and that was to eliminate it. Well, yeah, and here it stands. And speaking of OPM, speaking of federal policy toward employees, I wanted to ask you about just the various agencies that have been proposing return to the office policies and renegotiating the telework that took place during the pandemic. And it seems Mm -hmm. to settle on most agencies are asking for people to be there three days a week or six days out of the 10-day pay period. In the case Mm -hmm. of some agencies, it's four days, like the National Science Foundation. What's your sense of, I mean, you hear opposition also from the unions are saying, well, they didn't fully negotiate that with us. But at some point, something's got to settle in. What's your feeling about where that should be all headed? Well, I think that federal employees during COVID proved that they could work at home and be productive. And so an awful lot of federal employees commuted hour, hour and a half, two hours, particularly in the, around the large cities, and did their job and did it well and feel that mandatory return to work makes no sense. If they're doing the job, they're performing well, they ought to have the option to stay at home. Now, that doesn't mean that they would stay at home 10 days a pay period, but it does mean that an arbitrary number doesn't make sense to many federal employees. The White House itself, this administration, is pushing for a generally more in-the-office experience, and they say for headquarters employees. And what about the idea of at least one agency has said, well, management has to be here that amount of time, but those in the bargaining unit can remain whatever they were doing which was maybe total telework or some fraction thereof. Is that a good way to go where there's different rules for different (laughs) levels? Makes absolutely no sense, Tom. I mean, why should I have to commute to work when I am not more productive at work than I am at home? You know, the Biden administration also in its policy said, well, you know, we need people to come to work so that downtowns can survive. I'm not so sure that federal employees should be responsible for the economy of cities. Rather, they should be responsible for performing the work that they're assigned and performing it well. And it seems to me that that should be the criteria about working at home or mandatory being in the office. Because if you go with the policy and the practice you're favoring here, which a lot of people agree with you, then the question becomes, why do we need so much real estate? Let's consolidate all of these federal buildings. We could probably get rid of at least the leases. And then a place like, I don't know, the Commerce Building or the Agriculture Building, which are enormous headquarters, and they're only 10, 15% occupied, you could get three or four departments into agriculture 
and call it the federal well, building. I, you know, some agencies are now in the process of consolidating their real estate and saying, well, you know, the people who are going to be in for more than five days or more than six days will have guaranteed office. And those who are going to be in a fewer number of days will be hoteling. So I think agencies are already moving in that direction, Tom. Can you see condos maybe in the treasury building at some point? <laughs> oh, Tom, I don't think we're going to see any condos in, in, in the treasury building. All of that beautiful building with their fireplaces? No, I don't think so. Not in the treasury building. All right. Maybe, uh, I know, HHS, that would make great lofts. You know, it's hideous from the outside, but you could clear out the inside and you have some nice big windows. You know, I don't think that any of these departmental headquarters are going to have that kind of an issue because most of these headquarters agencies have huge amounts of space in downtown Washington, D.C. But I do see some of those buildings being let go and consolidation taking place in the others. All right. We've covered a lot of territory here. We know people are listening, but are they going to do what we say? We'll find out. Bob Tobias is a former federal union president and retired professor in the key executive leadership program at American University. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the Agriculture Department puts together a new model to manage its cloud services. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. The Agriculture Department's new request for information for a cloud computing management initiative is a clear sign of where it's going next. With more than 80 percent of its applications already in the cloud, says Gary Washington, the USDA's chief information officer, this new Stratus program will improve vendor management, as he tells executive editor Jason Miller. We're always aspiring to improve on how we provide services and eliminate duplication where we can. And that's what Stratus is designed to do to re, you know, replace some expiring activities that we have going on and continue to provide an enterprise ability to uh, operationalize like financial and cybersecurity platform execution for our mission areas, it, it, as well as have greater use of vendor management as well. Now, I know you released RFI a few months ago. There's still a process to go forward. And, and uh, what is the, if you will, for lack of a better word, Gary, timeline that you're looking at? Do you hope to have a draft RFP out later this year, a final RFP out? Is there anything you can tell us? Because obviously a lot of vendors will be interested in uh, trying to understand what your acquisition strategy looks like. I, there's not much to tell by virtue of that right now. I mean, a, a request for information is, you know, basically what it is, a request for information. So, you know, based on the responses we get, Dave Peters, who's heading this up for us, uh, you know, we'll have a discussion about how we move forward. All right. I'm just trying to uh, help help keep your email box from filling up and your phone call, your your answering <laughs> machine getting filled up. So uh, well, I, I understand. I've gotten a lot of I've gotten a lot of uh, questions about this, and you know we have to be um, very careful <laughs> about what we say in regards to wh where we're going with this. So no, absolutely, and that's why I thought we uh, at a high level. Just it's always great to get get kind of that you're thinking about it. Because I think what Stratus does is it builds on, uh, from my perspective, from the outsider's perspective, it builds on some of that work you have been doing again over the last yeah. decade or so. So let me let's take a step back. You mentioned this idea of uh, an IPT, but then you also said we also have a cloud broker office. Can you describe a little bit of what that cloud broker office does, how it works, and how it helps those mission areas 
move into the cloud and, and understand where the modernization opportunities exist? And the cloud broker office really is our uh, business entree into uh, cloud services from a metrics perspective, you know, from a cost perspective, from an options perspective, in turn, and, you know, helping mission areas get their um, applications on the proper landing zones so that we're all on the same page in terms of not just what is going on, but how much is cost, how much, how it's performing. When any changes need to be made, uh, our broker office gets involved in that as well. So it's been great for us and it's provided a lot of value and we're running our cloud activities like a business, uh, which is what we wanted to do, wanted to achieve. Gary, I want to go back to something you were just talking about when you, when you mentioned the cloud broker piece, understand the proper landing zone. Currently, we hear a lot of agencies talk about this hybrid environment. You mentioned multi-cloud, of course. Does the cloud broker also help your missionaries decide, hey, you should be in cloud X or cloud Y, or maybe you need to stay on-prem, but you can move to the cloud when you have spikes in usage? What's those discussions like? For the most part, people like Casey get involved in, in those discussions, but they everything that you just mentioned is basically what they discuss. They, they discuss better options for performance, costs, what cloud they should use. Um, you know, the options that are available to them, those kinds of things. Uh, we do encourage our uh, mission areas to come with us with any ideas that they may have. And, and we have discussions about, you know, we don't, I, I, we're not the office of no, but we try to provide them information on what would be best for what they're trying to achieve from a mission perspective. You mentioned Casey. It's, of course, Casey Cook, who runs uh, one of your cloud branches. I just did an interview with him on this show as well, just a few weeks ago uh, on your API strategy. So thanks for that mention. He did a, And by the way, he did a very nice job. So give him lots of credit. So when you see him, make sure you, uh, you, you give, him, give him good credit. I would do that. <laughs> All right. When it comes to the, the this idea of cloud broker, one thing I just also want to talk about is you also can be overwhelmed by the numbers of requests and the number of priorities. Have you found that as folks got more comfortable with using cloud services, have you found that because of the pandemic even, you, you all are getting more requests than you can handle? Or are you able to kind of find that right balance of and prioritize which applications, which mission sets, which data can go to the cloud, which can maybe stay in their current application setup and, and then kind of move to the cloud in, in the future? We've gotten increased business, as you will, but I think we've been able to manage that uh, very well. I mean, we have um, some talented staff that manages these activities, and we're very realistic about what we can and cannot do and how much it will cost, the level of effort it will, it will take on. And uh, our mission areas have been great partners with us in having those conversations. So even during a pandemic with the increased activity, working with our mission areas, we've been able to, to, to manage that very well. And I think what tends to happen is what I hear from other CIOs is once people get kind of that taste, it's like, oh, wait a minute, we could do this, we could do that. Let's yeah. let's move faster. And and you all, like like any agency, is is limited because of both resources, money, but time, and then also obviously workforce stuff as well. So so it's good to hear you were finding that right balance. One of the big trends that I've been seeing over the last, if you will, again, a couple of years, is this more acceptance of software as a service. If you go to the FedRAMP marketplace. The majority of those FedRAMP cloud services are software as a service. 
Gary, we talked about it briefly earlier. Can you just go through a little bit about how USDA is seeing software as a service and are you using more of it or do you see more of it coming into play over the next 12 to 18 months? Yeah, I mean, we use software as a service broadly across USDA. I mean, we use it for service management, business management functions across our headquarters and our mission area organizations. And we do anticipate a growth across USDA you know, if the business case indicates positive return on investment and improved customer experience, because we've been hammering home that when we transition to SaaS, um, you know, we want there to be value from that. So, um, but we, we've been using it broadly, seen great success with that, and we anticipate the continued growth. When it comes to uh, using software as a service, is it any different than early cloud efforts when you were using platform or infrastructure? Or yes, it's different, but it's basically the same steps, the same approaches you have to take. What's different or, or more challenging or complex about software versus infrastructure or platform, if anything? Well, I, you know, I, I think it is different than infrastructure as a service and platform as a service. I don't think the three of them are the same, you know, but I mean, it's consistent with the challenges, we, our overall cloud challenges. Over the last five years, we've had strong success on an individual program and application basis transitioning to SaaS. And uh, we've achieved increased benefits with the collaborative, collaborative approaches with our mission areas. So, you know, they come to us and we provide them with best practices, security standards, DevSecOps, and other standard approaches. So we're trying to get into having people experience reuse, repurposing code, reducing release development cycles, and integrating the customer experience with our management tools and everything. So uh, we're becoming more mature in this, like everybody else, and making sure that we're making uh, decisions for the right reasons. And you know, we we do this in consultation with our USDA CIO council and our cloud working group to make improvements in this area and have greater lines of communication. Gary Washington is Chief Information Officer of the Agriculture Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO at federalnewsnetwork.com. 57 past the hour, this is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and The Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, July 28th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of the Federal Drive, our budget cuts the best way to fix troubled agencies. Plus, U.S. Space Force tests out wearable devices to track Guardian's fitness. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, a huge fine for a big-name government contractor, 
a flood of interest for the next great government-wide acquisition contract. And despite all the challenges with federal procurement in the market, there's a lot of optimism about where agencies and contractors are heading. That's just some of what's going on in procurement. And to help us unpack the latest, Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller, joins me now in studio. And Jason, let's start with that big fine. Yeah, this was a whistleblower case, and it's really all the buzz now, isn't it? It very much is, Tom, and I think the reason why is because of the, the amount of money. And in this case, the Justice Department is, is saying Booz Allen Hamilton is settling allegations. I want to be clear here, settling allegations. There's no admission of guilt. we got to be clear of that. They're paying, if you will, a fine has agreed to pay $377.4 million. This is probably, Tom, one of the largest False Claims Act settlements we've seen in at least a decade or more. I did a little bit of research and, and saw some of the law firms, and they talk about False Claim Act settlements, the biggest one, for instance, being a $2 billion fine levied against GlaxoSmithKline, but that's on healthcare side. When you talk about procurement and federal acquisition, I, I don't remember too many that are going to be above this $377 million. Right, and this was a whistleblower case, and that whistleblower will be someone who can sail away if they so choose. They, they are a former Booz Allen employee, and they are going to set to receive about $69.8 million in connection to this settlement. And what's interesting about this, of course, their lawyers will get some and they'll have to pay taxes on some, but they're going to walk away with a pretty penny. And it all comes back to this idea that the allegations that Booz Allen was charging the government for money that should have been on other contracts, meaning they said, well, our potentially our person or our employee traveled to Mexico or to New Mexico for something and said that's a that's charge the federal, but they really should charge their commercial client or their a different client. That happened for a 10-year span from 2011 to 2021, according to the Justice Department. That's a no-no. And if there's one thing the government doesn't like is you don't lie to them and you don't uh, overcharge them. Yeah, well, those key TAM cases can be costly and they do happen with some regularity. The overall payments, I think, are down to about $2 billion in the last year, the Justice Department is reporting, but it's a steady state thing. It is, and I think that's one of the things that's interesting is the Biden administration has been, I would say, less aggressive when it comes to key TAM lawsuits and whistleblower or false claims act type lawsuits than maybe previous administrations have. And I think that two billion dollar number is way down from more than five billion. But what I've seen over the last, I'll say, year, year and a half, Tom, and I'll be really interested to see what the 2023 numbers look like. They've gotten more aggressive. There's another false claims act settlement that I'll just highlight as well. And this is again another settlement from a company called 4C Results. They agreed to pay about seven million dollars to resolve allegations that, again, they violated the False Claims Act by falsely representing that they used a methodology of the American Customer Satisfaction Index, ACSI, to measure customer satisfaction. This stems back to a contract from 2011 with something called the Federal Consulting Group, which is actually part of the Interior Department. And uh, basically, they said we would use this American Customer Satisfaction Index in the end the allegations were that they didn't, and they settled this. So again, another really interesting False Claims Act. Again, the whistleblower here sure. won't receive as much as the first one, but they'll receive uh, about a million dollars or so. All right, and let's shift gears here for a moment. This next big acquisition contract, GSA's Oasis Plus vehicle, and they asked for comments, and boy, did they get them. They released the request for information about a month ago, month and a half ago now, and as of July 14th, they had over 4,500 questions. Tom, you say, well, that's that seems like a lot. Remember, there's six RFPs that they released at the same time, you know, unrestricted, women-owned business, 
hub zone business, so all the socioeconomic categories. But if you break it down, that's about seven, eight hundred questions per RFP. That, that's a lot to answer. And I think it just shows you the interest in the community about for this Oasis Plus professional services, multiple word contract that GSA is putting out there. GSA says they will release the Q&A answers, the answers in, in batches in the coming weeks. And obviously, they'll notify industry through SAM.gov and uh, the Oasis Plus Interact community site that GSA has. And, and again, I, I think what's key here, Tom, is because the bids are not due till mid-September, roughly September 13th. I could almost put a dollar on the table here, Tom, and tell you, I bet they'll get a little bit of there'll be an extension or two or three. Sounds like it. Just based on all these questions and answers that they're going to have to put out. And no using chat GPT to answer the questions either. But you can use chat GPT to ask the questions if you like. Yeah, that's true too, yeah. But I think the the real piece here is how much interest there is. And that really is good, but it's also paves the way for concerns about protests and the like that could come with Oasis Plus. And I know GSA is doing try to get ahead of those concerns, but uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. And the, the, this fall, as the answers come out, we'll have plenty to, to follow. And federal acquisition people themselves, generally speaking, they're pretty positive about their jobs, where their agencies are going. This is from a survey. This is the Professional Services Council did their biannual acquisition survey. It's the 21st year they've done this. And basically, they've talked to about 200 different people in the federal market, uh, 13 agencies, all contracting officers and folks in the acquisition world. And just to get their take their temperature, what do you see? What What's important? What's hard? And while, of course, budget challenges is, is the first thing that comes up and what's going to happen with Congress and are they going to pass a budget? Are we going to get a CR? What's going to happen? And that's there's no answer there. There is a lot of positivity going on. And in fact, there's growth in the federal acquisition workforce, uh, though it's still very challenging to hire people to ensure that they're trained well, but they're seeing good growth. One person commented, when and if we return to the office, I'm not sure where we will sit because we don't have enough room for everybody. And that's actually a really good sign that at least there's some growth in the acquisition workforce because for years, Tom, as you know, that has uh, been a huge issue. The other thing that the PSC survey pointed out that I'll just highlight, and it goes back to our Oasis Plus conversation, is they asked the question, how beneficial is each of the following acquisition strategies to achieve your mission? Number one, rank number one, was multi-agency contracts. So an Oasis Plus not only is very popular from the industry side, it's also very popular from the government side. They yeah, it like saves these, lots of time. Saves time. And, and they also said longer-term contracts gives you more ability to deal with the budget challenges and, and sure. other challenges. What's on the low end? Mentor-protege programs. It was very interesting. The joint venture mentor-protege, they, they were not as excited for that for mission outcomes. They did also give a lot of credit, which I was surprised for, Tom, about category management and spend under management. Less excited for best-in-class vehicles. Because, Tom, as you know, if you're not best-in-class, what are you? You're man-class. <laughs> you're you're no man. good in class. That's right. Or you're the worst. You're or the you're, worst in class. Or you're truant. we got to work on that name. All right. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. And be sure to check out his stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still ahead, U.S. Space Force tests out wearable devices to track Guardian's fitness. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.